Well, good morning. It's uh, wonderful to be with you this morning. My name is Luke Miedema. I am the pastor in uh, a little town called Basalt, Colorado, near Aspen in the Roaring Fork Valley on the western slope. I'd never heard of it either until I moved there just a few years ago. Uh, but it's a beautiful place to live, raise kids, and pastor. Um, but it's also just a blast to come, be able to come to the city here every couple years and join you all in worship. Got to bring my uh, 13, almost 13-year-old son with me this time. So we're doing our big New York City weekend together. Um, but I knew Jason from back in our Chicago days where we shared a few years. And when he moved here, we started following the ministry here and the, the story of Central and the renewal effort and the way that God has been at work here. And we are just thrilled and encouraged by what God has done in your midst. So know that you have allies and friends and prayers in the Roaring Fork Valley, whether you know where we are or not, we're for you and we're with you. And it really is a, a pleasure to be here this morning. So let me read our passage. We're going to be in Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Our passage this morning comes towards the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And like many of Paul's letters, as you read through the closing chapters, they can feel a bit disjointed, a bit disconnected, almost like the topics are just thrown together in a long list of things he wants to get across before he signs off. It feels sort of ad hoc. The closing chapters of some of Paul's other letters, he passes on greetings to his friends. He reminds someone to bring some books that he left behind in his office. He even tells Timothy to take a little wine with dinner to help his tummy ache. I mean, it sounds like a to-do list for my Monday morning. Uh, in our passage this morning, Paul publicly addresses a church fight. He re-summarizes the theme of his letter. He gives the antidote to our anxiety and then has a running list of about eight things he wants us to keep on the front of our mind as we go through our day. The heading in my Bible for this section even says exhortation, encouragement, and prayer. In other words, a little bit of everything thrown into the soup. But it's worth remembering that Paul is a pastor to this local church and he's responding to the real world circumstances of his people. Their lives and ours feel disjointed. They feel thrown together. They feel ad hoc and a bit of everything thrown into the soup on a given day. So it makes sense that being a pastor to them might read that way as well. 
But as we read our Bibles, it's also important to remember that it's not only authored by human hands, but by God himself. Our lives may feel disjointed. God never is. So we can trust that what reads like a laundry list at first is actually far more than that because we know and trust the hand that wrote it. What is the bigger story? What is the the deeper operating system that holds these pieces together? What's the unity that drives Paul's pastoral heart as he addresses his local church in the closing chapters. Instead of launching right into our passage this morning, I want to do something maybe just a little different. I want to first consider the wide-angle lens that Paul is writing within, the deep operating system of his pastoral heart. I want to go all the way back to the beginning of the big story of the Bible, the bigger story that holds together all these disparate pieces of life, the bigger story that holds together this text. The big picture story that God reveals to us in the Bible is a totally unique thing. Do you guys know that? There there is no other story like this in the world. And lots of reasons, but one of the most unique things is how it begins. Unlike the ancient creation myths, if you want some gnarly reading, look up the Enuma Elish, okay? It was a Babylonian creation myth written about the same time as Moses wrote Genesis. Uh, I'm not going to quote from it here, but if you want some crazy reading, look it up later. Unlike the creation myths that were common in the world when Moses wrote Genesis, they featured gods slaughtering each other and they created humanity out of the blood of their victims so that they could be servants and slaves to the gods. And, and unlike our modern creation stories and myths that feature accidental collocations of atoms randomly coming together over the course of billions of years to create human life, but only after millennia and millions and millions of years of death and violence and chaos so that we can emerge as the winner in this brutal game. The Bible's story is uniquely different. The Bible announces that you are not the result of violence. You are not the result of death. Whether by disgruntled gods or an evolutionary power machine, the Bible tells a story that you were thoughtfully, purposefully, intimately crafted, handcrafted by a God of love to reflect his love to the world. It tells us that you have a purpose that you have an ingrained dignity, that you have a reason to be here. On the Bible's view, our world is not made from an overflow of violence, but an overflow of love. At the very foundation of creation, there's goodness. At not harm and evil, the very fabric of our world and culture is made from the stuff of relational love, not injustice. Is anyone else you hear in the world telling that story today, that deep, deep down at the core of things, this world is good, and you have a reason to be here. You have a dignity and a purpose. There is a great hope in this story. Our world started in beauty and love, and despite all appearances today, we have a hope that it can finish that way too. But there's also a great tragedy in this story. As we know, something has gone very wrong hasn't it? Our world isn't supposed to be like this. Our world is broken, and we are broken. So what went wrong? 
In Genesis 3, we read the story of Satan, an evil spirit slithering into God's good world, and he tempts Adam and Eve, the first human beings, to disregard God, to trust their own internal voice over God's good and loving voice for their lives, to live in God's kingdom without uh, allegiance to God as king. And as soon as they made that choice to follow the voice of their internal intuition over the voice of God, everything broke. Let me read you just a short section of Genesis 3. I promise we'll get back to Philippians 4 here in a little while. This is Genesis 3, after they made their terrible decision. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, well, the woman you gave to be with me, you know, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me, so I ate. Here's what I want us to notice uh, about the big story God is telling in the Bible from this passage, this comprehensive operating system of God's world. Um, I want us to see what exactly broke, what exactly fractured in God's very good world when this rebellion began. God built a world out of the overflow of his own relational love. So the fallout from our rebellion, of course, is relational damage. First, our vertical relationship with God fractures in this moment. What was a perfect relationship with God? Walks together in the cool of the garden, intimate access is now hide and seek and not the fun kind, okay? Uh, this is hiding from the source of life. This is running from the source of love. This is a devastating fracture in the human relationship with God that we not only inherit, but perpetuate. And next, we see our horizontal relationships with one another fracturing as well. What was a perfect relationship of trust and mutual vocation in the garden between Adam and Eve quickly turns into a blame game. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames God's creation. Adam blames God's design. It's everyone's fault but mine. And distrust and blame are introduced into the human story for the first time. Our relationships with one another break. And lastly, there's an internal relationship we have with ourselves that fractures as well. What started as perfect comfort in their own skin immediately turns into a deep discomfort in their own skin. Their nakedness, it's no longer uh, their image-bearing glory, but it's now their shame. It's, they don't feel at home in their own skin anymore with themselves. They experience guilt, embarrassment, remorse. There are broken parts in their own heart and soul and ours too. Sin arrives, relationships break. Vertical, horizontal, internal. Have you ever asked yourself, I'm sure you have, you're thinking thoughtful people, okay? Have you ever asked yourself, why God let this happen? I mean, why let it happen at all? Presumably, he had the power to stop sin from fracturing and fissuring his entire world. Why let such a perfect, 
new, very good creation, literally built out of the overflow of his own Trinitarian love. Why let it be broken so thoroughly, so extensively, so deeply? Why allow this devastation to even enter the great story in the first place? Why the carnage we experience today? Well, the short answer to that question is we don't know. The much longer philosophical and theological answer to that question is we still don't know. But this is what we do know. This is what we know. We know what God is doing in response to the brokenness in our world. In his mercy, he does not leave us broken. In his mercy, he does not abandon his world to the cosmic trash bin. He does not let the violence and death get the last word about what he created in beauty and love. Instead, God doubles down. He enters a world we broke and is broken by us in the world. He submits himself to the consequences of our rebellion in order to restore us, redeem us, resurrect us and the world with us to make what was broken beautiful again. Paul puts it like this in Colossians 1. For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. How many of you have heard the word kintsugi before? Do you know this word? Okay, I was just introduced to it recently uh, by actually a a Christian artist who spends time in the city named uh, Makoto Fujimura. Kintsugi is an ancient Japanese practice where broken pots and bowls and plates are not uh, discarded, they're not uh, thrown into the trash bin, but they're restored using the most valuable and precious thing available, gold itself. The gold is actually melted and painted into those fissures and broken seams, and it's almost used like glue to, to glue back together broken things. Google it later. It's incredible. The, the beauty of the broken and then restored artifact is actually far greater than the new, untarnished original. You see, it, it, it is certainly more valuable than the original. I mean, not only because of the gold that's now infused into the piece, but even more so because of the care and the attention and the craft that the skilled artist used to renew and remake and redeem it. Something originally designed very good is invested with even more craft and more value and more beauty because of the skilled hands that heal it. And because those hands use the most valuable thing in the world to bring restoration. We don't know why God allowed his good and perfect world to be fractured by sin vertically, horizontally, and internally. We don't have access to those mysteries, but this is what we do know. God is literally rebuilding an entire Kintsugi world. Instead of discarding the broken and giving the rebels exactly what we deserve, God doubled down and has invested great time, great wealth, great artistry to reclaim and heal broken lives in a broken world. Today, right now, right now, among us, the Holy Spirit is healing the cracks in our lives with the most precious substance in the physical and spiritual universe, even more precious than gold, the blood of Jesus Christ. The world is broken, 
but it's not lost. It's being remade, and the promise of the Bible is that everything will be more beautiful and valuable and glorious when it's all said and done than even when it was created, perfect, and brand new because it's been reinvested with God's own sacrificial love, with the gold of the gospel of grace. This is the mental and spiritual operating system of the Christian life that is running in the back of Paul's mind as we finally turn to our passage this morning, Philippians 4. And I think what Paul is commending to us in this collection of seemingly desperate verses is that in Christ, we have the opportunity to receive the restorative presence of Jesus into the very places in our lives that are fractured and broken today. Genesis 3 tells us the story of three relationships breaking, the vertical, the horizontal, and the internal. Philippians 4 shows us the real world lived path of those three relationships being healed and renewed in Christ, the vertical, the horizontal, and the internal. And Paul is inviting you to receive the valuable healing presence of Christ into the places that are most broken in your life and in the world. So let's look at these briefly together. First, an invitation to receive the vertical peace again with God. Verse four, Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This is not the first verse in our section, but it's sort of the linchpin. It's the theme that holds it all together, the joint that holds the pieces together. This is an invitation to enjoy God's presence in your life, his loving, healing, gracious presence. And the kicker is to enjoy it always. It's easy-ish to be grateful and thankful to God when things are going well. To, for us to believe that there's a generally benevolent superpower out there somewhere in the universe who's generally looking out for us, or at least on call if we get into a tight spot. We have his number, right? But to rejoice in God always and rejoice in the work he's doing in our life always, this is a whole nother depth of trust and relationship with the living God. This is not easy. To enjoy God's goodness and love when we get the devastating diagnosis from the doctor, to rejoice in God's care when, uh, for our lives, when our dreams start to fall apart and our hopes for happiness or fulfillment at work or the right relationship, they all look thinner and thinner and we realize it might not just happen at all. To rejoice in that moment because God holds all things in his hand, that's different. That's unique. To rejoice in God's commands when he tells us to do ridiculously hard things that are countercultural things that make us look strange and weird to the world, that's different. That's a different story. That's a level, that level of joy requires not just a general belief in a good grandpa in the sky. That kind of joy requires a relationship of trust and delight with the living God. It requires a new heart that can rest in God always. This is a joy that is not sourced from our circumstances. It's a joy sourced from God himself. 
this joy is based on his grace to us, not our feelings towards him or our obedience towards him at, even, at any given time like we just sang about in that great old school Cadence Call song uh, that was wonderfully done. That reconnection to God, that redeemed relationship is exactly the precious gold that God is painting into our lives at that point of brokenness, at that fissure. God is gluing us back together, restoring us into a relationship with himself using the most precious substance ever known, the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. His blood heals that crack. His grace reseals us into God's family. His grace secures us in God's love in such a way that we can rejoice in him always. And his grace restores our relationships to one another too. Look again with me for a moment at verses 2 and 3 in our passage. Um, Paul uh, publicly addresses this, these two women. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The Philippian church, you may know, it started when Paul walked into a ladies' prayer meeting. You can read the story in Acts 16. Lydia was a key leader, and it's very possible that these two followers, Eudia and Syntyche, were also there from the beginning. We don't know, but they seem very prominent in the church, public enough that when they're fighting, Paul wants to address it publicly. These women were key leaders in the community. We don't know what the disagreement about is about, but we don't have to. It's just a church fight, right? I mean, it could be about the color of the carpet. It could be about how to use the discretionary funds. There are so many possibilities for fighting in church. I'm sure you know. Um, It could be something that one of them did to the other one in a personal business deal that has nothing to do with church life at all, except it does. Because a rift between believers is a rift in God's family. A division in the church is a division in Christ's body. Whatever it was, they just can't seem to reconcile. And so Paul urges them to agree in the Lord. And look at what he points to as the foundation and the power for their unity together. These two women, he points out, have labored side by side in the gospel. They have already been united by the gospel itself. They're already together, whether they feel like it or not, it's a fact, a shared belief that Jesus is our hope, that his promises are certain, that he has forgiven us and will make us whole. It binds us together permanently. We will be with one another into eternity, whether we like it or not. This is your family forever. I don't know how that makes you feel, but it's a fact. And Paul appeals to it to help these women reconcile. This gospel hope binds them together and they are also on the same gospel mission together. They labor for this gospel to go forth. They both want the gifts of God's grace to extend and grow deeper and wider into the city where they live. Paul is saying there is more than enough unity and common ground and and glue and family resemblance in these two things. A common hope to draw from in the gospel and a common mission to extend that gospel to more and more people. There's enough glue there to hold together all kinds of different secondary differences. 
Their past hurts in love, in unity, in Christ. St. Augustine is, uh, is famously known for saying, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty or freedom. In all things, charity or love. Jesus has the power and the intention to enter into our fractions, our differences, the, the relational brokenness we have into those tender, hurting, frustrating relationships and to heal them in the Lord. Is there someone in your life, maybe in this church, that you could move towards in that kind of unity? Not because you agree necessarily already, but because you're both bought with the same precious blood of Jesus, and you're both being healed by the same precious blood of Jesus. Is there someone that you could talk to this week, maybe apologize to this week, or maybe simply just walk up to and say, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we're a part of the same church family. I'm glad we'll be together into eternity. We're surrounded by broken relationships in our life. They are so common and so hurtful and so ubiquitous, it's almost impossible to imagine it could be any other way. But Jesus is in the business of restoring broken things and straining and hurting relationships. He's painting those fractures and those fissures. He's stitching together those seams with his very presence among us. There is hope for relational damage in your life. There is hope for unity and love, especially amidst diversity and difference. Not because we have the resources within ourselves to bridge those gaps, but because Jesus is at work in our broken world, creating a kintsugi world, something more beautiful after it's been broken than it was before it was broken. Imagine the possibilities of that kind of world right now. And lastly, Paul offers an invitation to enjoy the internal peace that you can have inside your own skin. These are the famous verses from this passage. Let me reread them briefly. Verse uh, 6, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be, ma be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Anxiety, of course, is our culture's epidemic, isn't it? All of the research and the data coming out shows that we are the most anxious, mentally unhealthy, lonely, depressed, isolated generation there has ever been. And every time we look at our phones to get a break from it all, it just makes it all worse, okay? We're, we're going, we're, the, the cure is worse than the, the disease. We are fractured in here, not just out there. From the Garden of Eden to now, we have broken and sinful hearts. They don't work right. They, they don't hold God's life-giving water like they're supposed to. They leak. They drift. They, they stray. They even lie to us. But God says right here, if you're willing to let him in to those places of anxiety and fear and shame that all of us carry around inside, Jesus will go to work right where you need it the most. In our prayer life, he will bring peace where there is no peace. He will bring joy where there was only despair. 
He will bring healing and renewal where the main thing we felt before was guilt or shame. There's a, there's a theologian that puts it like this. In our modern world, many people seek freedom from anxiety by trying to empty their minds. Paul teaches us that true peace can only be ours when our minds are properly filled. And that is exactly what he does for us at the end of this passage. He commends to us what to fill our minds with. Brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, whatever is pure, lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Practice those things. And the God of peace, the healing God of peace, will be with you. Fill your mind and your heart with God's word. This big, beautiful story of the presence of Jesus at work in the world today, it's, it's lovely. It's excellent. It's true. It's worthy of praise. No one else is telling this story in the entire world, that it was created in beauty, broken, but will be rehealed and somehow be even more beautiful than it was when it starts with. No one else can tell that kind of story. It's incredible. The cracks and the fissures in our life are not frustrating to Jesus or repulsive to Jesus. He's not turned off by the ways that we've been broken and that we continue to break the world. He's actually drawn to them. This is amazing. He, he's gentle with them, those tender places. He's crafting something beautiful out of every pain and difficulty and even sin that has left a scar on our lives. He is like a great Kintsugi artist. Considering a broken bowl, he holds it up, he looks at it, and he is reveling, I mean just reveling in the opportunity that he has to piece it back together and create something more beautiful than it was before. He is an artist of pure grace. And this is one of the reasons that our church back in Basalt and your church here every week gathers around this table. God's family table, it's to receive again the most valuable thing in the entire world. This is a place where we come at church, not just to hear the gospel preached, not just to sing its truth, but actually to receive it, to, to get it down inside of us. The most precious thing in the universe, God's broken body, his spilled blood, needs to seep into those crevices and cracks and fissures of our life, doesn't it? And at the communion table, he offers us exactly that. Let me pray for us as we come to this, this table today. Jesus, you are an artist of grace, and you are restoring and reclaiming your lost and broken world. I am lost, and I'm broken without you. Enter into the places you know I need your grace the most. My sin, my guilt, my history of broken things, and heal me with the most valuable thing in this world, the blood that you shed for your family on the cross. Forgive us, unite us, your church, and help us run to you in every fear and anxiety this world throws at us. We trust you, Jesus, and we believe every promise that you have made is not only true, but it's ours in you. We ask these things in your name.